Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Neo Kobe Pizza, the only video gaming podcast that floats in soup. I am your host, Mark B, and today I am joined by Inside Pulse owner, operator, and overall Grand Poobah, Mr. Jonathan Widrow. How are you doing today, sir? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm doing pretty good. Thank you. Um, so now, when I originally reached out to you about this, the idea that you suggested to me was pretty interesting. And yet, at the same point, I kind of thought that was going to be something you were going to suggest from our previous <laughs> discussion a couple of years ago about consoles failing, uh, handhelds not going where they needed to go, that sort of thing. Well, I'm always interested in this subject. What do you want? Right. You, more than anybody else that I talk to, seem to have a more business-minded thought process when it comes to how games are working, how games are operating. Yeah, I think, especially since I've become an adult, where you can pretty much get whatever game you want, you know, anytime, the, the price differences don't make a big a difference. So a lot of times I'm looking out at the market and I'm seeing how they're reacting. And so many of my favorite games and genres have, have dwindled over the last five years, especially because of how the business is going. Yeah, it's, I feel like as we get older, the stuff that we were exposed to a lot as kids just kind of falls to the wayside a little bit as technology improves and people who are coming in from earlier generations are more interested in like the first person whatever or the more technically inclined stuff leaving things like platformers and shooters kind of in the dust yeah those genres are even racing is so different now almost all the racing games on consoles are these big sprawling open worlds and i still kind of prefer those 90s sega compact Ridge Racer almost experiences, and those experiences are gone too, that mid-level racing. Right, exactly. It's even Namco doesn't even really make those anymore at this point. The concept that you had suggested was, I think, taken from when you saw how the reception was for Street Fighter X Tekken and Street Fighter V? Yes. Um, well, Street Fighter X Tekken is now just like a few years ago, but uh, the, the response of the, the fighting game community and just everybody was just revulsion of how they handled the DLC. And I think that Capcom supposedly learned something from that because they tackled Street Fighter V in a different way, almost a, a, a freemium model, but they charged you full price up front. So it, uh, they tried a couple of different ways with those two games, and, and I think the comparison is there because they're, they're Capcom, they're both Street Fighter, and they're, what, four or five years apart. So you can see Capcom struggling over the years to try to find a way to monetize these games properly. And both ways seems to have failed. Now, for those particular games, I was kind of leery within how they were handled and how they were received just because I think their problems were a little more involved than that. Like for Street Fighter X Tekken, as an example, a lot of people hated the fact that the DLC was handled as it was, but it was mostly because the DLC was set up as an on-disc product where it was physically on the disc, it was already there, you just had to pay money to unlock the content, which I think rubbed a lot of people the wrong way. But the game also didn't catch on in the fighting game community in general just because they didn't like the way the game was structured mechanically. Totally true. Totally true. But I think, I think that I think it was set up for failure when everyone discovered the DLC was on disc. Which is true. And to be fair, it's that didn't make them a lot of friends. So with Street Fighter V, they went from the perspective of trying to set it up so that the game does accept actual downloadable content, but then they released the game in a less-than-complete state, something that pundits like Mr. Jim Sterling, for example, have referred to as 
early access or early AAA access, if you're not being a weirdo, where, where the content was released kind of piecemeal, and you're getting more content as time goes on, with their reasoning for that being because they wanted to get it out in time for Evo. And I think I think something that that gets overlooked a little with Street Fighter Five is taking it further back is there was there were they made a partnership with Sony so that they could fund a full game. You know, there wasn't any kind of funding issue, there wasn't any kind of production budget issue. They got first party help from Sony and they already gated off some of the community by not allowing it on Xbox and then they released an early access product. So I think they set it up for higher expectations because of the console exclusivity, and then they really lowballed in terms of how much content they launched with. And they did want to launch for Evo, but you know, it's not like that was a new date for them. Yeah, that's that's definitely true. And to be honest, there were better ways of handling it than they did. They could have just made the game available through the beta test, which they had originally, uh, with the characters that they had set up, and then maybe made a brief window of time where all of the characters were available for the beta as a test option to allow people to acclimate to them before Evo, or they could have made it known, hey, this game is going to be this way before you receive it, instead of just launching the game in the condition that it was with a full $60 price tag, so that everybody just kind of freaked out and lost their minds. Right, and it wasn't, it wasn't just the full price. It was the full price with a, a, a smaller roster than everyone was expecting. Uh, the graphical style wasn't a huge leap over Street Fighter 4. I think the entire package has been underwhelming. I know that there's there's positive reaction to it in the actual fighting game community gameplay-wise, but I think for, for a lot of other ways, it's kind of under-delivered. Right. And it's to be fair, this isn't the first time that Capcom has had these issues in general because they've been having certain issues with this sort of releasing games to an underwhelming response across all of their different franchises over the past couple of years. Given another example, most recently, Resident Evil Revelations 2, a game that did actually, by all indications, outsell its predecessor, though this may or may not be underwhelming considering what it was available for and how it was produced, didn't really generate positive fan response or positive critical response. A lot of fans liked the multiplayer on the game, but the piecemeal dividing up of the game into chapters didn't feel particularly well-structured, especially since the fourth chapter spent about five minutes with one part and then over two hours with another character. And the game just honestly felt like it was kind of hastily set up and delivered. Right, and, and, and I think that, that that tends to be true with a lot of episodic games where it's almost like an early access again, where we don't have the game complete 100%, but we do have 20-40% of it ready, so we'll start drip-feeding it to the audience, and some companies have had success with it, the Telltale games do really well with that, but I don't think it's been working well for Capcom or other AAA games. So, with all of that in mind, broadening it out a bit from how Capcom deals with stuff, and look, taking the lessons that they've learned, and the ways in which they've failed, to me, the, the question kind of comes to mind, can we apply this to other developers, other publishers in general, and just kind of see, okay, we didn't like it when Capcom did this, we didn't like it when Capcom did this, but other companies are doing it. Is there a sort of middle ground that's okay? Or to put it another way, when it comes to the idea of DLC, drip-feeding content, episodic content, things like that, what's permissible? 
Yeah, I, I think it's a great subject because I think gamers all over the world have different opinions of it. And I think there's a big difference between what people say they're appalled to and what they actually do. Because, you know, for, you know, these games that are a success, a lot of times they're having uh, microtransactions or, or, or even, even pay-to-win areas that gamers don't object to as much as they've objected, especially in these two Capcom situations. Right, and it's, this is an easily observable thing if you take a look at the world of mobile gaming, the majority of which is based off of microtransactions. Microtransactions are one of the biggest things that have been unleashed on gaming in the past couple of years, for better or for worse. And it's plainly apparent that this is profitable for at least some companies. Right. Um, um, it has to be profitable for most companies. You know, you look at an example of, of the season pass they tried about three or four years ago, where for $10 you would have to buy a special online pass if you bought the game used. And after about a year or two, they, they ushered that out. Apparently it was doing very badly for them. So the opposite, I think, can be said to about, about uh, microtransactions in that they're just increasing. It seems like every single game has microtransactions these days. Oh, yeah, and it's the mobile platform in particular taught developers that this was a great idea. And it's every idea that we see at this point starts off from somebody who probably has at least marginally good intentions and then is unleashed into the world at large from developers who get their hands on it who are much larger and aren't necessarily existing under the realm of do no harm. So, for example going back to microtransactions, you see a lot of games where microtransactions were essentially developed as a method by which players could pay a penny, a nickel, a dollar, whatever, and get something to advance their progress in a mobile phone game. And then companies like Zynga got a hold of it and just completely obliterated it. And now we're at a point where there are a lot of games that are just being supported by whales, as the term goes, who constantly dump money into these games to the point where having a couple of these whales can almost support your entire game for years. Right, and sometimes that's hundreds of thousands or millions of players playing for free and a small handful of people paying large amounts of money and it, it ends up being profitable. Oh yeah, and you can see from a mobile phone perspective how people can generate this sort of content. I mean, from the games that I play, I play Brave Frontier, which is a game that is essentially a little battle game where you have five characters go up against whatever things are in your path, challenges, other players, etc. And in order to try and get people to spend that money instead of being free to play, they'll offer limited edition packages of characters that you can potentially summon using in-game currency that can be earned doing other stuff, but... If you have a situation where you need five pieces of in-game currency to get, hypothetically speaking, the brand new Terry Bogard that they just put into the game, which is a thing that happened, <laughs> and the limit is you can roll for it up to 30 times before you automatically get it, well, that's 150 pieces of in-game currency. You probably don't have 150 pieces of in-game currency so wouldn't you like to give us $5 to get there? And it just snowballs from there. Yes. And console developers are kind of picking up on that a little bit. Now, to be fair, most console developers aren't doing the randomization aspect of things. They just offer you small, inexpensive 
things that you can purchase for a dollar or two dollars, and they say, hey, do you want this? Here it is. Yep, and uh, they also, there's still a lot of substantive DLC too, where there's microtransactions, but there's also, you know, levels, characters, a lot of pieces of the game that add value also. Oh, so yeah. I don't think the console area is as bad as mobile, where pretty much every mobile game that is designed around these gated uh, content and add this for red coins, add this for blue coins, but the green coins are what you really need, and those are rare and only really available if you pay for them. You know, it seems like, like mobile's almost, I, I don't want to say too far gone, because there, there are plenty of games that still do it nice on mobile, but consoles aren't that far, I don't Oh, yeah. Like, there are a very small handful of console games that do the randomization option, and for the most part, they try to handle it in a way where it's not as offensive. Take Overwatch, for example. Overwatch does allow you the ability to spend money on their custom chests to get items, but all of these items have no video game impact whatsoever. They're strictly aesthetic benefits. While there's that that compulsion to maybe spend a couple of dollars to try and get a skin that you really want, you're not going to be in a position where you're going to turn into a whale on that game because the only things you're getting out of that are in no way game impacting. Uh, Plants vs. Zombies 2 is another good example. Yeah, Rocket League is planning on doing that too with loot crates that are biddable, but they won't have gameplay. Right. And again, that's that's a good idea. Don't make this sort of thing affect the game mechanically, because if you do, you're making it into pay-to-win, and we've already seen a few developers kind of fall down that hole and realize, hey, this is a bad idea. And just circling it back, I mean, we've seen Japanese fighting game developers make this style of DLC work. I mean, DOA 5 is completely built around that. You know, Guilty Gear, the new one, has tons of color options that you can buy as DLC. So even, even, even making an apples-to-apples comparison against what Capcom was doing, you know, I, 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 correct me if I'm wrong, but on Street Fighter Across Tekken, they also had the gems that you could buy that would help you in the battle. Yes. So that was, that was a little bit of pay-to-win. Kind of, you could get some of those for free, but that definitely gave you some, that imparted some significant benefits in combat. I wouldn't say that those were enough to substantially upset combat, but they didn't help. They really didn't help. I think anything above zero is looked down upon in the console area. That's definitely true to a certain extent. I feel like consoles kind of benefit from what PC gaming originally established with the concept of DLC. So you would get expansion packs back in the day that would increase the game. So, for example, you had expansion packs for Warcraft 2, Starcraft, Diablo 2, Diablo, that would build upon the game that you already bought and still generate more money for the company without necessitating that they build this whole new engine from scratch or build this whole new game. And I, I think Diablo is a funny example, because if Diablo 2 ushered in the right kind of DLC, it's almost like Diablo 3 was emblematic of all the wrong kinds of DLC. And to be fair, Blizzard absolutely got shot in the foot for that and realized, shit, we shouldn't do that. Because what happened with that auction house? Everybody hated it. It very much became a pay-to-win sort of scenario. And people started hacking the actual weapons that you could get to a point where it was almost a useless thing to have. They ended up shutting it down, and they went back to straight-up normal DLC. 
So that, that's, that's interesting almost we've seen the market evolving where at one point it had gotten so far on the line where even companies that have great reputations like Blizzard, they, they, they were succumbing to the pay to win, you know, milk everybody, milk those whales for all we can, you know, at the top end where well, we can really get a huge amount of money from those people. And it's kind of been scaled back on PC and console where you know, taking it back to Capcom, Street Fighter V doesn't do anything like that. Instead, they're kind of doing the drip feed early access model that other companies, maybe, you know, you mentioned Nintendo with Splatoon, or I don't know if we mentioned it on the air, uh, but that would be an example. Right, and Splatoon actually doesn't really do anything financially to that extent that I'm aware of. It's all, it's, it's all free. Like, everything that they do in that game is free. So you, you just get all of your content at no additional cost. Oh, is that right? I thought some of it was paid. To the best of my knowledge, um, I haven't really spent a lot of time with it, but uh, Mr. J. Rose and Sean PC have spent hours and hours with that game. Yeah, but that's interesting. I mean, there are still some outlier games where they do offer you something as a form of microtransaction compensation. Team Fortress 2 is big on that with treasure chests that you can unlock uh, that you have to purchase keys in order to unlock. Again, Overwatch with its roll the dice and get your aesthetic packs. And Counter-Strike is apparently kind of a thing with that, especially with the weird gambling for skin stuff that we saw going on over the past couple of weeks. So it's there's definitely that kind of a market there in the world of PC and console gaming. I just think it's really kind of marginalized and not treated very well in favor of the idea of things like DLC to a lesser extent season passes and that sort of thing. And Team Fortress isn't even totally fair because I believe that's free to start. So they have to monetize uh, in a different way than uh, a, a traditional console or AAA game, which is charging some large fee up front and then continuing to monetize. This is true. And again, uh, Counter-Strike is also free to play. Right. At least in, in some of its incarnations. So that, that makes it somewhere where you would, again, want to try and get that free to play money, that freemium money, by offering up content that has an expense associated with it when the game itself does not. And I think Capcom was actually kind of aiming to go in that direction with Deep Down. Yeah, whatever happened to that? The, they haven't done anything with it in a while. I don't know what's going on with it. Now, it just occurred to me, there is actually one part of PC gaming where that concept does work, but may start not working in the near future, and that's in MOBAs. Right. Um, almost all of them are free to play to start, and then, and then you can buy things you know, to enhance your character. It's much more like the mobile model than the traditional console model. Right. And originally, uh, League of Legends was pretty much the place where you would go if you wanted that sort of expense. Dawn of the Ancients, the original one, was based off of a Warcraft mod, so I don't know how their financial model works, but with Dota 2, I would imagine that it has to be free to play in the same capacity. And even Blizzard got involved in that with Heroes of the Storm. Yes. Um, I actually, I don't know how well Heroes of the Storm is doing. I haven't followed it. But um, when you say that it, it might be running out, do you think it's because there are too many players in the marketplace now or just players are tired of it? Too many games, for one thing, honestly. Because, like, these three games that I mentioned are by no means the beginning and the end of it. There's Smite is another one that exists. Um, Overwatch kind of sort of apes off of that concept enough to draw people away from that. And to be perfectly honest, there's really not going to be a lot of 
interest in trying to unseat League of Legends unless your game is definitely better than League of Legends. Because games like League of Legends have been picked up by esports now, so you're not just asking players to come to your game, you're asking dedicated esports players who play this game to the point where it is no longer fun to jump over to your game and make it the professional place to be. And you're not going to convince like the top tier players to do that. So with something like a Heroes of the Storm, Dota is still already entrenched. It's got its own sponsorship. It's got its own people who are always going to be hardcore Dota fans. But with Heroes of the Storm, you have to attract the best players possible who aren't already playing League of Legends and Dota exclusively and competitively which means that you are unfortunately probably getting like the third tier players in a lot of cases and you have to try and build a professional esports ready environment around that yeah that's an interesting uh an interesting twist on it because those games are so fueled by the esports area now that even if they did well with consumers if they don't get traction on esports it might not be worthwhile to keep them going Right. A prime example of that is a game that I've been kind of following during its development process called Atlas Reactor, uh, which is kind of a MOBA, but also with turn-based combat. During the initial emails that they were sending offering beta weekends to test the game out, the game was originally going to be a free-to-play experience where they were going to work off of that League of Legends type model. And then at some point during the process, they eventually came forward and they said, listen, this is not going to allow us to make the game that we want to make. It's not going to be financially viable, and it's, it's going to kind of sacrifice on some of the profits. It's not really a viable model for us. We want to just charge $20 for the game. It may have changed at this point, but that was what it was when they sent the email out about three months ago. And we're just going to sell you the client with all of this stuff unlocked, and that's it. That's, that's going to be what you're going to pay. And it was interesting to realize that there are people who are looking at that free-to-play model and saying, yeah, this, this isn't really feasible now anymore. Yeah, it's almost like the market has come full circle. So, you know, they, they, there was a race to the bottom for, for price, and then they reached zero. And now zero isn't uh, working anymore, so they're moving it back up. Well, I mean, to be fair, it's not like there aren't a lot of things that make it appear as though this is a far worse idea than it first appeared like a year or two ago. A year or two ago, League of Legends was incredibly successful, and it still is. And it looked like you could potentially cash in on that market. And by all indications, visually, there was a lot to indicate that that was the best possible idea. Go free, or go for a set cost, and then try to convince people to pay more money at some point down the road. In the past couple of years, we've seen that really wasn't the best possible idea, as a lot of people have tried and failed. Right, but if you, if but I feel like the free model was a response to all the MMOs that tried to compete with World of Warcraft, and they couldn't get anyone getting a subscription, so they went free, and a couple of those worked out. It's almost like there's no lesson to be learned from the, the previous. You always have to do something new. That's true to a point, though. I feel like MMOs are kind of in decline at this point in general. World of Warcraft is still very successful, but it is consistently hemorrhaging players. But they're not going to another MMO. They're just leaving MMOs. Right, but it's, it's the same kind of player that, that, pay, that plays the same kind of game in and out every week, every month for years and years. And for those players, a long time it was MMOs, and maybe now those are the kind of players that have drifted into MOBA. Which is very true. But it's, you can't 
as a developer, look at those other developers and see that that's going to be the best overall choice. It's it's it feels like you kind of need a certain amount of market foresight that a lot of these companies don't have necessarily. Blizzard investing in Heroes of the Storm seems like a really risky move, but they have BlizzCon, they have a lot of popularity in the Korean marketplace, which is a big hub for real-time strategy games and MOBAs at this point. They and at least esports. have in esports in general, yes. They have that leverage to where they can try and push that forward. Uh, the company who released Smite, not so much. Yeah, or even Battleborn recently was another example, right? Where it was kind of a, a an attempt at that genre by... Uh, um, Gearbox. Yeah, and that didn't really work out for them, and they're a pretty big company. To be fair, I feel like Gearbox is a kind of a case where all of the problems that they've accumulated over time finally came home to roost with that. But yeah, that was definitely a case where I think they grossly overestimated the interest in what they were trying to do, especially when they realized that they were going to end up going head-to-head -head with Blizzard on this and didn't try to deviate from that path, thinking that they could compete. And yeah, that didn't work out well. No. But you can also see this in games completely out of genre, where people have looked at the ideas from free-to-play games, MOBAs, things like that, and tried to apply those to their own content. As a primary example, Evolve. Evolve came out as a game that was launched into the public sphere of knowledge as, hey, this is a thing that we're going to do. And then all of the pre-order information was announced before we had any real information on the game. Right. And then from there... It just became, oh, here's all of this assload of DLC that you can have for this game. Be sure to pay for this DLC, 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 DLC. And then the game came out, and everybody was like, okay, so where's the actual content that makes me want to play this game long enough to pay money for this DLC? Right, so obviously that was a wrong way of, of handling it. And uh, the game didn't do well, and um, they're shifting it, right, to a free-to-play model now. Exactly. And then from the other side of things, you have something like, say, Street Fighter V or Star Wars Battlefront, games where they kind of just launched a client with a couple of modes, and they're not looking for you to pay anything for it. They're just looking for you to pay that $60 up front for a game that, to be perfectly honest, in its initial inception is not worth $60. Kind of like they're saying, hey, give me your $60, and I'll give you $20 worth of game. And then in a couple of months, I'll give you another $20 worth of game, and then another, and then another. So you'll eventually end up with $80 to $100 worth of game a year down the road. You know me. I'm good for it. <laughs> and, and it's EA and Capcom, two of the companies that have the worst reputation of not being good for it. Exactly. And in the case of Battlefront in particular, since it's almost entirely online... It's not like in two or three years you're even going to have any game. Those are the kind of games that they disconnect and you lose almost the entire value of the game. Right, because Electronic Arts is known for doing that. Right, where Street Fighter V, you at least get the fighting game to keep, whereas the online shooter, you pretty much have nothing left. You know, it's Titanfall or it's even in a worst case mag, where it's just completely unplayable. The problem is, is that we, we kind of have seen this sort of thing starting to happen. But I think the first place where it really did happen was kind of by accident. Because right when, right when the Xbox One launched, we had Killer Instinct, which was kind of a piecemeal free-to-play fighting game 
where you could buy whatever characters you wanted to buy. And I don't think it was handled the best way it could possibly have been handled. But after a couple of years, it's clearly grown to the point where it's a fairly robust fighting game with a fairly robust roster of characters. And while it might not rival, say, Street Fighter V or Mortal Kombat on a technical level or on a structural level, at the very least, it seems as though they've, they've put together an interesting idea on how to make that money by offering people to just pay what you want for the characters that you want to have. Or you can just buy one package and get all the characters right up front. And even more interestingly, they just announced a retail package for fall where you get the entire game for $40. Right, which is definitely the best possible way of maximizing all of your options. You just release the client for free with Jago, let people test it out, see what they think, and then, okay, do you just want these couple of characters? Here you go. Do you want the whole package? Well, we've got multiple different packages available for you, depending upon who you want to have, what you want to do with them, etc., to make it so that you can spend as little or as much money as you want in getting all of this content. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting, you know, flip of the usual dynamic, which is all marketing goes into the launch date. All sales are going to be within the first week or month, you know, boom or bust, $60. And from then on, it's pretty much dregs. Whereas on the Killer Instinct model, they launched it. Season one had a few characters. They made some money. Season two had a few characters. They made some money. Season three had a few weird characters. They made a little extra money. And now, now that it's all complete, they'll release a full retail package at the end. So it's almost like the Game of the Year edition becomes the edition. And everything before then was building up to it. It's, it's completely the, the, the regular model flipped on its head. True. Although, I would also note that it didn't necessarily help them out within the fighting game community, as Killer Instinct is not an especially tournament-ready game, though it may be once this package releases. But it has to be asked, was it worth it for them financially to release the game as they did, instead of trying to get it ingrained into the fighting game community for that extra press once the esports side of things come into play? Because again... We, we just saw a fighting game tournament on ESPN. Yep, and Street Fighter V was the star of it from everything I've seen, was a, was a major part of the event. Yep. And so that part, of the, that part of the launch for them was a big success. So if we look back, let's say 18 months down the line and Street Fighter V has 40 characters and all the features everyone was looking for, but it also got entrenched in such a way where it kept Street Fighter as the top or one of the top franchises in the fighting game community, you know, how do you evaluate the success there? Yeah, it's, it's, that's going to be part of the hype machine as much as anything else. Street Fighter, regardless of whether or not people are mad at the condition that it launched in and the lack of things that it launched with, the reality of the situation is Street Fighter V was kind of pushed into being the top-tier experience just because it's Street Fighter, and there was never given any thought to trying to find something else to be, for lack of a better way of describing it, the fighting game community's Hulk Hogan when trying to get themselves onto ESPN. Street Fighter V was always destined to be the golden child there, even if nobody was really thrilled with the way that it launched. So it's hard to objectively measure its success when it was preordained to have success from the beginning, whether it was a good experience or not. But if it really was a bad experience, they would have just gone back to Street Fighter IV. Well, the thing is, mechanically, it's not a bad experience. It's in every other way but the mechanics of the game, it was a failure. 
that's such a big part of the game, though. I mean, so, like, you know, it's that old Miyamoto uh, phrase of, you know, a bad game is forever, but a delayed game is, you know, I forget what the exact phrase is, but uh, edit that out. <laughs> yeah, it's like, it's a bad game is forever, but if you push a game back, if you delay it, you can eventually make it good. So they delayed the, like, the, the kind of window dressing, but if the core underlying game is, is such that even in its degraded form, it, 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 it rose to the top of the fighting game world. And, and, you know, that isn't a strict meritocracy, of course. But, you know, if it was a broken mess, technically, it couldn't have taken that spot. Right, and it's... I feel like a lot of this kind of falls back ultimately to Destiny. Well, Destiny is, a, 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 I think, a good example of, of, of a, a launch gone particularly bad that, you know, the, the, the hype was there, the sales were there, but the content wasn't there, and it took them a really long time to catch up. Right, and it's... The thing is, when Destiny launched, mechanically, it was pretty great, you know, Bungie knows how to make a first-person shooter. Some people don't like the type of first-person shooter that they make, but for the many people who do, Bungie is one of the best. So they developed a game that, mechanically speaking, was pretty much top shelf. Unfortunately, everything surrounding it felt kind of... Half-baked? Yeah, it was just, it was just a half-baked experience from start to finish, exactly. It, it lacked in narrative structure, it lacked in content... It was. It felt like half a game. It had that loot crave, Dave. Exactly. And so what did they do? They spent a year polishing that game, and all of a sudden, the following year, holy shit, Destiny is great. The Taken King is awesome. We're still going to keep paying money for all this DLC. Destiny ultimately succeeded in the public view because even though it failed at launch, even though it was limited at launch, they eventually got it to a point where it was what players wanted. And the thing is, I don't think Bungie did that on purpose. Well, I mean, on purpose is subjective also, because if, you know, I'm sure internally they knew what it was going to launch like. They could have either, you know, pushed it out or they could have cut the scope of the game. But they, at some point along the way, they consciously decided, we're going to launch with the best of what we have. We're going to, we're going to table certain parts of it. There's not going to be a single player option. You know, and and we're gonna add, we're gonna iterate along the way. But I, I think that they had to be aware that it wasn't as it wasn't gonna meet expectations on launch. Right, and that part I'm certainly I certainly agree with you on. But I don't to put it into perspective, when Final Fantasy VII came out, I don't think Square Enix was looking at that as the game that was going to turn the Japanese RPG into the heavily cinematic experience that it ultimately became for a number of years. I think they just launched it as a game that they, was how they wanted to make it with no further expectations. Because for as much flack as Final Fantasy VII gets for being, you know, a cinema-heavy JRPG, it really wasn't. Final Fantasy VIII was, which was the game that they built afterward where they kind of fell into their own hype. In right. the same perspective, I don't feel like Destiny was designed in a way where they consciously felt that they were going to release, you know, half a game and then push it out for whatever amount of time to try and get more content attached on and hope that the fans would stick with them. I think they honestly kind of felt that the game was in the appropriate sort of condition it needed to be in, and fan feedback convinced them to change their mind on it, and they eventually won people back with the added content. So why do you think, though, that, that the fans somewhat accepted what Destiny did, but have, have revolted so much against what Street Fighter V did. You think it's that awareness where Capcom pretty much knowingly released it half-baked? Yes, honestly, I do. 
See, the thing is, is Destiny gets a lot of flack, myself included, of being like half a game. But the reality is, is that Destiny wasn't that bad. It would definitely felt like it was lacking and underdeveloped. But I don't think it was the sort of game that felt like it was just, oh, okay, it's a race to the end and then I'm done. If you want an example of a game that feels like the developer started from the beginning, knowing that they were going to make it a, a race to the end and then waiting for drip piecemeal additions to the overall structure, the division is a lot closer to what we credit Destiny as being. Right. So when you get a developer who comes in, looks at the Destiny model and says, well, we can just charge $60 for $30 worth of game and then push it out after the fact, yeah, I think people are going to be a little hostile about that unless you make it known up front what you're doing and why. Or in the case of Splatoon, just make the entirety of the updates free. I just checked, and there are, they've all been free. So there was there was some pushback at launch that there wasn't enough to Splatoon, but if you push them all out for free over the course of a year, then, you know, I, Street Fighter Fives are not free. You can, you can earn them in-game, but a lot of them are accelerated if you pay for them. Right, and it's... Look at it from this perspective. Take a look at the games that were really successful that did this kind of stuff that the fans didn't really complain very much about and accepted. The two that come to mind immediately to me are Splatoon and Overwatch. Because, I'm sorry, I love Overwatch, I think it's great, but it's not a fucking $60 game. And if you think that it is, you're, you're drinking the Blizzard Punch, and that's fine, <laughs> that's on you. I'm not that big of a fan of Blizzard, okay? I'm just not. Splatoon originally launched in a capacity such that everybody was like, hey, this has limited content, and Nintendo said up front, yeah, this is the way it's going to be, but we're going to constantly make sure that you've got new content. Nintendo had that trust and reputation from games like Smash Brothers, where we had consistently seen content drip-fed out, though it was at cost in that case, but still, we knew that Nintendo was good for it because they had already showed us that they were good for it. So when they started immediately pushing new content into Splatoon, nobody was really that surprised. Right, and plus that was that was I think with that new IP, people were were more willing to give it a shot. Whereas Street Fighter Five, it's not an experiment; it's the fifth one, and and not even the fifth one; it's the twenty fifth one. Where, Pretty much, you know, <laughs> you know, where th- there wasn't going to be a lot of shock in what to expect there. It's not like uh, we're going to attract you know new legions of fans that don't know what it is. Right. And then by the alternative comparison, you look at Overwatch. Overwatch had been available as a game that you could beta test in various capacities for months. A lot of people got into the closed beta, but the open beta was available two different times before they launched it. And they made it known, listen, this stuff that you're playing in the beta right now, this is the game. This is the whole game. We're going to be adding competitive ladders later, and we're going to be putting in new characters as time goes on. But this is the game. And people were able to make that decision from actually playing it as to, do I want to pay X amount of dollars for this game or not? It's They never hid anything. They never pretended the game was something that it wasn't. They just told you up front, listen, if this is worth your 40 to $60, this is what you're getting. We're not adding in anything else. We're not hiding anything from you. You're getting this. And again, we're, we're what, like a month and a half removed from the launch of Overwatch approximately, and we've already got a brand new character. It's it's yep. Blizzard has proven that despite the misstep of the Diablo 3 auction house, they're good for it, and they were honest about it up front. Compare that to Street Fighter V, where 
Capcom didn't even tell us that this was going to be half a game until we bought it. True. True. And I mean, I just downloaded the story mode, so I haven't tried it yet. But from what I understand, the content that's coming out isn't even that great. So it's like they've had all this extra time, but the content they're, they're drip-feeding out isn't like it's blowing everyone away. To be fair, I don't know what people were expecting from a Capcom story mode. Have these people played a Capcom game? Capcom is not known <laughs> for their great literary achievements. That's true. But, and plus fighting games in general. Yeah, and it's... Well, no, to be fair, Arc System Works has been turning out some really damn good stories in their fighting games. Guilty Gear Exerd Revelator, which I just reviewed uh, a few weeks back, um, the story in that, I didn't understand half of what was going on, and I still felt like that was a pretty damn good story. Yeah, I, I remember the X-Sign one was really out there. Mm -hmm. And then, I mean, you can compare this to the other games that have been high-profile failures and how they've done things. Evolve, as an example. Uh, way too much DLC that was advertised month in advance as being DLC attached to a game that was a full retail experience and just didn't have a lot to offer players which was doubly insulting when you realized how much DLC there was. Star Wars Battlefront. You weren't told when you bought Star Wars Battlefront or to credit another one, Rainbow Six Siege. You weren't told, hey, you're getting half a game and then we're going to give you some extra stuff later. And I don't know how Siege is going, but Battlefront, like two months later, they got like a new map. Yeah. If, if, if you're EA and you have to come out and physically apologize that your game wasn't as good as they... It was as was expected from the marketplace, and that you rushed that game out to make sure that it came out in time to sync up with the movie, that's public admission that you fucked up. And, and it can't just be a budget issue, because you know, we've talked about a wide variety of companies, Nintendo, EA, Blizzard, they're all billion-dollar companies. So there, there's some kind of difference in the way they're allocating their resources, in the way that they're testing, in the way they're scoping these projects, where some companies seem to have it under control and some seem to be, no matter how much money they have at their disposal, like, can you imagine a higher budget game than EA plus Star Wars? Like, you know, how could there be a bigger budget game than that? I think kind of what we're seeing here is the replacement for the game was buggy and fucked up at launch. Which is what? We're just holding back a large majority of the content and it'll be buggy and fucked up at launch anyway? Well, not necessarily, because here's the thing. Street Fighter V was an incredibly limited game, but it wasn't really that buggy. There were some issues with netcode playing it online, but the game itself functioned well enough. Uh, Star Wars Battlefront wasn't as bad as it could have been. You didn't, you didn't see those games act as high-profile failures because the content was broken and fucked up. You saw them act as high-profile failures... Although, again, failure is kind of relative considering Star Wars Battlefront made all the fucking money. But if you have to apologize, I'm still going to call it a failure. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's those games came out and they worked-ish, mostly. The Division didn't, but The Division is just a piece of shit. And I'm, I'm sorry if you like it, it's still a piece of shit. A lot of these games that a year prior might have come out with all of their content but broken as hell came out working but with missing content. And, I, I, you know, I, I hate to circle back to something we talked about too long ago, but, you know, the disappearance of so many of these genres, whether it's mid-tier action games or non-open-world racing games, I think it's related because, you know, you know, three years ago, EA released Battlefront totally broken on launch, you know, and now they release Star Wars half-finished, but at least mildly working, 
it's because the budgets have gotten so huge just to create a half-working first-person shooter that is their big-budget game, there is no room left for any other type of game in their launch. They just they, they can't handle them. That's definitely true. Though I would note that the independent marketplace is at least partially picking up the slack to a certain extent. Like, I mean, insofar as racing games go, there are a few that are available out there, though I haven't particularly tried to invest time or money in them. And insofar as, say, shooters go, I just downloaded one today that was $2 that Alex directed me to, which was, I believe, I don't remember what the name of it was, unfortunately, but there's definitely that that marketplace of ideas where you can still get access to those games. It's just not coming from an EA or an Ubisoft or an Activision or whoever. It's, it's coming from the people who actually still want those kinds of games. Uh, yeah, sure. The indies have picked up the slack, but, you know, the, the, the production values aren't there. So, you know, it's, it, I think it's interesting that there's only a few billion-dollar companies even making these AAA games, and even they are having trouble delivering complete packages for $60 at launch. They're releasing half-finished, they're releasing with DLC on disc, or maybe not on disc, but at least coming down the line. I don't think anyone will actually put it on a disc anymore. Um, uh, so, so it's an interesting way that the market has evolved where we heard, oh, used games are unsustainable or $60 has to go up in price. And neither of those two things have changed. And instead what's changed is there's fewer AAA games. They're launching in half-finished state with wildly different types of monetization. Seems like they're all still trying to survive. Oh, yeah. No, I definitely agree. It's, it's The critical responses for a lot of these games have been wildly all over the place. The, the critical responses for how these people are trying to recoup their money has been wildly all over the place. But it's, for the most part, the, the idea that a $60 release can be enough is difficult to really rectify because in a lot of these games, we see either massive financial failure because the game just didn't sell well, and then the next game has to pick up the slack. Or we see games where the developers try to justify the extra money that they might need in case the game doesn't pick up the slack, and then people just shit all over them again anyway. Yeah. And it's, it's really hard to imagine where you can go with that as a business model when the games that you're pushing out just aren't making money. Like, Dead Space 3 had the ability to purchase in-game upgrades with real-world dollars. And while this didn't really impact anything from a multiplayer perspective, it wasn't unbalancing, it did sort of hurt the game's public perception due to the fact that it had all of these microtransactions. That, combined with the fact that the game wasn't a financial success sales-wise, probably is the major reason why EA ended up putting that game on the shelf. Right. And, you know, and EA's, you know, EA's put so many different types of games on the shelf because they have been, not been able to make the money work. Right. Like, why would you devote the assets to trying to push out this game that's probably going to cost X million dollars to make when you can devote those assets to a game that you already know works? Like, if I'm Ubisoft, why am I going to devote assets to making that Beyond Good and Evil 2 that X amount of people want to make? if I know that Assassin's Creed Unity is going to make me more money, even if I send it out broken and fuck-handed. 
Yep. And, and it, it's not even close. Like, you know, uh, those type of projects, Beyond Good and Evil 2, or I'm even surprised Mirror, Mirror's Edge Catalyst, something that could exist at EA in 2016, where like these not as mainstream properties that are some of the best game experiences aren't going to be possible at the AAA developer level anymore. So that all kind of comes back to the idea of, say you're an EA, say you're an Ubisoft, say you're an Activision, say you're fucking whoever. How do we get to that point where we can financially justify releasing a game like a Mirror's Edge Catalyst or a Dead Space 3 or a Beyond Good and Evil 2 or whatever? The, the game that's not going to be successful necessarily, but is going to appease a certain demographic at a AAA level while still funding our AAA games, like what's the solution? I, I'm not sure. We've seen it. I think we've seen a couple of interesting solutions lately, where Activision has hired Platinum to kind of make uh, medium tier games for uh, popular properties. So they had Legend of Korra, they had Transformers, and they had Ninja Turtles, and they weren't full Platinum games, but they were targeted at that kind of mid tier action game niche. I think they worked on varying degrees of success. True, though ultimately you kind of get into the position where if you farm that out to somebody. If they're below a certain level, they're going to produce a shit-tier game that nobody's going to really want. And even if it does make you money, it damages you in the long term. Uh, see Konami farming out Silent Hill to basically any company that they could find to the point where it ultimately damaged the brand of Silent Hill. Or you can farm it out to a company that does have a positive reputation and watches that company slowly destroys their own reputation. See Platinum. Yes. It's pretty clear that Platinum, I feel like Platinum is kind of treating this sort of game the way Grasshopper Manufacturer treats these sorts of games, because Suda51 would use Grasshopper as a way to fund the games that he really wanted to make. So you would see a licensed game come out of them that was absolutely dog shit, but it would pay the bills for them, and then he would funnel that money into another Flower, Sun, and Rain, which is also dog shit, but you get what I'm saying. Right. I feel like Platinum is using games like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and uh, The Legend of Korra and, you know, uh, Transformers to funnel money into their actual projects that they want to make, like a Bayonetta 2, although that was financed by Nintendo as well, so that's not a great example. But, you know, just their own games that they want to be responsible for. And they've suffered less damage because at least of the three of the four licensed games that I can come up with, counting Metal Gear Revengeance, um, three of those games were at least fine-ish, with Ninja Turtles being the only one that people actively crapped all over. Yeah. But sooner or later that's not gonna hold out, and that's gonna that's gonna end up hurting them unless they can keep the quality of their games high, which again is eh, right now. But let me ask you this, because I, I didn't play Ninja Turtles, but I did play Transformers, and I did play Korra, even though I didn't really know about that cartoon. And I liked both of those games. So would you rather not have those games, or have them in their budget, not as polished, maybe single-A slash double-A version? I'm perfectly fine with the versions of the games that they got to a point. Like, I didn't play the Transformers game, but I know more than a few people did enjoy that. I did play the Legend of Korra game, knowing about the character, and I felt like that was the best Avatar-type game we were going to get. 
I don't think it was the budget issue that was the concern. I just think they did a lot of stuff. They did some stuff in it mechanically I wasn't a fan of. Yeah, but I mean, it was a $15 game. I thought it was pretty robust for $20, whatever it was. I, I, I liked it because I try to play all the Platinum games, and I, you know, I know that it didn't totally fit with the cartoon, and it was some of the complaints, but overall, I thought it was pretty solid, and I think that it's almost unfair where we're judging on AAA, highly polished Battlefront standards, I think, on sometimes on some of these games that are in the middle tier. Right, it's... I agree there. Like, I don't feel like The Legend of Korra should have been judged against other Platinum games necessarily. And I, for, for what it was for $15, I thought it was pretty good. Um, Ninja Turtles, for the amount of money that they were asking for it relative to what it did, no, I do not think that was very good. But it's I don't have a problem with Platinum releasing these sorts of games as single or double-A type experiences so long as the cost is equivalent. And I really feel like we need more of those kind of games, honestly, than we're getting. See, I agree. I, I would love to see more of these kind of games, but I think that we're in the minority. I think, you know, we're in our 30s. I think that younger gamers are not, uh, are not tolerant of that. I think they want either triple-A, highly polished, 1080p, 60-frame games, or they call them trash, even if they're, you know, right there or, you know, 75% of the way there. See, I don't agree, actually. And I feel like history bears me out because what was one of the most well-regarded and best-selling games of last year? Uh, Undertale. Yes, well... Kids yeah. love that fucking game, dude. That is true. And that, 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 that is the opposite of high-res graphics. Right, put another way. What is one of the consistently best-selling, best-received, best-appreciated games amongst kids now minecraft oh well yes and that game looks like shit dude <laughs> that is true i'm still baffled by it a little because it's 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 a game that inspires them to go out and create all kinds of crazy stuff whatever it is they ultimately decide to make and it's kids will be accepting of games that look like doo-doo so long as those games offer them something interesting to do I feel like a game like an Undertale or a Minecraft is that sort of a game that, you know, shows that games don't have to look great. They just have to be interesting. That is true, you know, and so uh, So I wonder if that's one of the problems with Street Fighter V is even though it does have some made minor changes over Street Fighter IV, it's still the same one-on-one -on -one fighting Hadouken kind of gameplay we've seen for 25 years. Maybe that's never going to captivate the mainstream like a Minecraft or, or Undertale will again. I don't. I think that that's definitely the case. Um, that we're kind of in a position where fighting games are popular, but they are not the cultural zeitgeist that they were in the early to mid '90s. And I really feel like while they have become a part of esports, and while that is going to help them in the long run. I don't think they're going to enjoy the kind of sustained long-term success that MOBAs have had being a part of esports or that StarCraft 2 and StarCraft had being a part of esports. I don't think that fighting games are going to see that kind of cultural resurgence, though I do think they're making more money now than they were a few years ago. I think there's kind of an upward ceiling to that to a certain extent. And it may be because there's only so much you can do with those mechanics, but launches like Street Fighter V had certainly didn't help.
No, and maybe they're just getting more money out of the fighting game fans. You know, how many Blaze Blue have there been? There's already been two Guilty Gear excerpt, and you know, they're, they're charging more and they're doing more to milk the same fighting game fans. So maybe part of the market failure with Street Fighter V was, was more that this market is shrinking. And that's possible to a point, though at the time it was certainly treated like Street Fighter V being a PS4 exclusive was a big deal. Um, though it's also possible that the market shrank just because not as many people invested in a PS4. But being a niche game isn't, you know, the worst possible thing. We're starting to see companies like, you know, Sega and Bandai Namco start to invest more heavily in those niche games that only have a certain amount of audience. Bandai Namco with bringing out all kinds of anime-inspired games. Sega with trying to regenerate interest in Valkyria Chronicles and Yakuza. And then on top of that, I mean, look at the, the biggest success story in niche games of them all, fucking Dark Souls. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm, but, but, you know, getting back to it, will, will they be able to have the, the AAA kind of size of a budget for a Street Fighter VI after a Street Fighter V didn't, didn't deliver? I think they can, but I think it's going to take a lot of rebuilding. I guess the, the major question isn't so much how do they build up that budget after their failure as much as it probably is how do they get back to a point where street fighter 5 can make the money at all because that game dropped in price pretty quickly when it became apparent that they had screwed the pooch on it absolutely and it's not like it's not like a traditional free to play game where they're going to keep generating you know whale money they have their dlc that will just start going down in price I think at this point, what they're probably going to try to do is, since they've actually built a client that can handle updates now, instead of having to release new disc versions of games every single time they want to get an update out there, I think they're probably just going to try and build on that game with as much DLC as humanly possible, and then worry about shit like balance later. Yeah, it's still not the best, though. No, it really isn't, but... I think because of all the attention that that game has with, again, it just featuring as a big part of the recent tournament on ESPN and the, the general positive perception from a lot of members of the fighting game community in general, because you see Street Fighter V everywhere. You know, if you look on Up, Up, Down, Down, Xavier Woods' gaming channel, What's one of the games that he loves to play on that channel when it comes time for competition, Street Fighter V? When you look at that huge fight, not necessarily fight, but like casual competitive battle between uh, Daigo, one of the most top-ranked Street Fighter players in the world, and Lupe Fiasco, the rapper. Street Fighter V. Yeah, I saw that. Yeah, it's it's that's where the publicity is going to be because it's it's the most notable game for better or for worse. So even though the game failed, I think it's just a matter of it's always going to be directly interconnected with the high profile stuff in the fighting game community. I think a more informative thing to watch is probably going to be Evolve. Well, they, they've shifted to free-to-play on PC, but not on console, right? Right. So I wonder, I wonder how that's going to work out, and I wonder how people that paid for it respond when things go free-to-play. The general response from players has not been great. A lot of people who are coming in new or who were hoping for the game to 
have any type of a community have been positively receptive to it. But most of the people who have been upset with the changes have been upset because of some of the mechanical differences. I don't think there's too many people who have specifically been upset about the idea of I paid $60 for this and now it's free just because the game has been dead in the water for a year at this point and anything that gets you a player base, which, to be fair, the game's player base fucking exploded in the wake of it going free-to-play, is probably going to be seen as a good thing. Yeah, that makes sense. And, and I, I, I actually don't think it's the worst, worst thing in the world to have almost every game eventually go free-to-play. I mean, like something that I talk about in, in my career sometimes is that movies have you know five or ten different times they can, they can earn money, whether it's the theatrical release, then the international release, and the home video, and pay-per-view, then HBO, then regular TV. And so at each, at each vantage, they get a burst of revenue at varying levels of success. So even if it tanks in the box office, they could do really well on home video and make up some of the money. Whereas in video games, so many times it's that launch week, it's that launch month, and then that's it. So maybe there's something to the idea of after two years, almost every game goes free to play and then, and then adds microtransactions so that people that bought the game have reinvigorated online and that new people will be able to be monetized. That's not a bad idea, though I guess it's really going to depend on how games are structured in the long term. The problem is, is that Gaming is also one of those weird mediums where in order to be able to access a game, you still also need to be able to access the technology it was made on. Like, if I want to go and watch whatever movie I want to see, all I need to be able to find is a platform I can play it on. So if I want to watch The Maltese Falcon, if I can find it online to watch or on a DVD or on you know Netflix or uh, whatever, I can watch it. And it's it's not that hard to get access to it. With games, it's if I don't have an Xbox 360 or a PC that can run it, and I want to play Dark Souls, until it was ported to the Xbox One, I was fucked. Yeah, that's a unique challenge of games, and I don't think they've done a good job of solving that yet. No, it's backwards compatibility was a major point of contention for developers uh, coming into the current console generation up until Microsoft realized, well, we're boned, might as well try this. Yeah, somehow it worked out. <laughs> yeah, and it's, you know, Sony doesn't give a shit about it because why would they? They're winning. It's going to be an, a weird challenge all the way around, I think, because we're, we're kind of in this position where everybody wants to squeeze every last drop of blood out of the stone possible. And holding on to those brands, those concepts, those ideas means that you can leverage them at a later point. Like, we're seeing, you know, in television or Sega or Nintendo release packages of old-ass games and make money off of them because they're not readily available otherwise. Or if they are, you, you know, have to break the law to play them. And I think a lot of companies are like, well, every single piece of our IP is valuable and we should hold on to it. Like, we're, we rarely see instances like when Fallout and Fallout 2 were available for free from... Uh, GOG, because most developers feel like their intellectual property is always worth something, even if it's 10, 15, 20 years out of date. Yeah. That's a whole other discussion, but I could, I could go off on a rant on that. But I mean, even, even Nintendo releasing 30 games in their new emulated unit, that's only, you know, a small percentage of the games from that era. 
or otherwise not available in any way. Yeah, that's. I feel like that's a conversation I want to have. At that's some a conversation from another time. <laughs> yeah, and it's getting it back to the core topic here. I, I guess for me personally, my thing would be everybody has different levels of acceptance for what they would be willing to deal with in terms of add-on expense. Do you have anything in particular that you look at and it's like a deal breaker or it's I don't care? I, 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 I Sometimes I feel like releasing... I, the, I guess the one area that I'm very against is the episodic into the full game, the way that Hitman is doing. I just I think that uh, it just it reeks of trying to bring out too much money from the player that wants to spend for your game. But for the most part, I've been pretty okay with a lot of it. Um, I'm not as I'm not a hardcore online gamer, so um, I don't have uh, a lot of experience with that stuff. But you know, in Street Fighter V's case, I think what they're doing is preferable to a super, and then an arcade, and then an ultra version every year, or even preferable to what Blaze Blue does, where they add like five new characters every year. I think for a full price game. So I, I think that I think Capcom got hurt a little bit by uh, their reputation on this one. In that, you know, if Nintendo had done something very similar, I wonder if they had, we would have gotten the same kind of blowback. Though the Smash community has a really big following, I think that that probably would have hurt Nintendo more, especially because, again, Smash is, is big in its own community, but its own community isn't a big representative part of the world of esports. No. It's, I really feel like Capcom is not going to have to deal with as much as would be implied. And again, a lot of these companies did ultimately make some money off of it. Um, again, Star Wars Battlefront made all the fucking money. And Rainbow Six Siege probably made a pretty penny as well. Street Fighter V is probably going to end up making a profit at the end of the day because of its involvement in the fighting game community, I think probably the only company that significantly suffered at the end of the day was fucking Turtle Rock. Yeah. But Capcom, I think, is kind of in this position where they actually are doing it right with Monster Hunter, where you're getting free DLC for this game that you just pay for once and you're done. And I'm not sure how you can translate that to the AAA games that they're trying to release. Because there's there's a certain point where your game costs too much money to just be giving away free content like that. I kind of feel like at the end of the day, regardless of how you feel about DLC or microtransactions or whatever, I feel like it comes back to the fact that we need more of those games, as we said before, that are just fine mid-tier games. Plants vs. Zombies Garden Warfare 2 is a fine mid-tier game. It's not AAA. It, I don't think it's meant to be AAA. Even though it launched at $60, they've already decreased the price pretty quickly, and it, by all indications, did well. I just feel like if you're then going to... like, There's, there's got to be a balance where I can't feel like you're trying to make another $60 off of me within the confines of that game. No, so would you prefer a sequel at that point? Because a lot of people complain, for instance, about yearly sequels, Call of Duty, Assassin's Creed, but that's another way of dealing with it, where instead of you know making a game that lasts three years, they make three games that last one year each. I don't think there necessarily needs to be a compromise there. Like, I don't think DLC is the problem, of all the things. Like, I don't think DLC is necessarily something we need to, you know, think is a bad idea. 
season passes are concerning because you don't know what's going to be available or if you're going to even like it. So the idea of making a season pass available from jump kind of smacks of we held back content, even if they didn't, in order to make you pay more money for it. But I don't have a problem with DLC on its face so long as the DLC is good. Right, but I mean, there there's some part of we held it back in all DLC. I mean, a decision was made at some point to release the game at one point and monetize after that instead of just holding it all for the release of the game. So there's some point at, at all game production at this point where they're they're making that call. That's true. Though, I feel like if your game feels like it's a complete experience, I'm fine with DLC as it is. I just don't necessarily need to know that you've got a season pass lined up a month before your game comes out. Like, when they were advertising a season pass for Batman Arkham Knight one, two months before the game came out, that came across as a little shitty to me. Yep, and uh, they didn't actually do a good job of, of uh, from what I understand, of making that content compelling for the price. No. Meanwhile, XCOM 2 had a season pass available, but it wasn't shoved in your face as a big deal. It was just, if you went to go pre-order that game, it was, oh, hey, uh, we're going to do a season pass, too. To be fair, the season pass in XCOM 2 kind of sucks, also. But at least it, like, it felt like that wasn't a big focal point of the ad campaign. They didn't feel the need to constantly remind me that there was going to be DLC coming for it. It was just, oh yeah, we got this idea planned out. Do whatever with it. So you think it's in the presentation where you don't be quite as heavy-handed with how you're promoting the season pass? Yes. In general, I feel like the more you are harping on your expansion content before your game launches, the more likely it is to me that you're holding content back and the less confident you are in the actual content that I'm getting before your game is even launched. Oh, so it's like saying, you might like it, but just wait, there'll be even more you like. Exactly. It's If you're going to have that content available, that's fine. I'm okay with that. Show it as a thing, maybe in the manual, or not the manual at this point, but like on the back of the box, let's say. Or show it on your store's Steam front page, but don't make it part of your advertising a month or two months before the game comes out. Because that tells me that all you're really interested in is trying to find the ways to make the most amount of money off of me possible. Well, that might be true. The devil's advocate is there's a certain marketing budget and they want to get all the messaging to everyone in that initial burst of marketing interest. And that's the best way of telling people about the season pass. Right, but if I like your game, I'm already going to be interested in the season pass. If your game sucks, I'm just going to hate it worse. That's true. That's true. Insofar as like other content goes, honestly, you know, I don't mind add-on content. I was never somebody who hated horse armor. I was never somebody who hated individual piecemeal content components, so long as the price was right and there was a compelling reason to invest in it. And to be perfectly honest, I don't even care about microtransactions so long as they don't impact the flow of your experience. But I can also understand why some people do have that issue. So to me, it's I feel like the major thing that should be kept in mind is for a lot of the things that people are complaining about with all of the games that we've talked today, it isn't so much that people wholly object to the idea of spending extra money on these games. It's in how it's presented. 
Oh, yeah, how it's presented seems to be a big part of it, and the company that's presenting it, where, you know, we've, we've harped on two companies, EA and Capcom, that are, are somewhat lowly regarded by gamers. The Nintendo and a Blizzard that have earned trust over years of being still shady, but less shady than their other billionaire company cohorts. Exactly. But, I mean, it's interesting to me also that when, when you get into how certain things are are put together and presented, even the companies who are the most well-reputed can have that one instance where something doesn't work the way that it should. Like, for example, one of the major things that people are complaining about with Overwatch is that it's virtually fucking impossible to get the thing that you want unless you inevitably end up dumping money into their boxes. And sure, it's only cosmetic items, but people, once again, like Jim Sterling, have been exceedingly pissed off that it's taken them forever to get anything worthwhile. And when they did, it was for characters they didn't even use in the first place. Right. So, you know, even in games that are doing it right in a majority of the ways, still there will be a minority of people that are unhappy with it. Right. And I feel like a lot of it comes down to how you handle it. Like, if there were just tokens that were given away for that game, for example, you got X amount of tokens if you cash them in for whatever you wanted out of the store for characters that you wanted instead of getting random draws of items that might be for characters that you never even fucking use, I think people would be less upset. Like, I mean, for me as an example, I play Mercy predominantly in that game. And I've gotten two items and draws up to, like, the first 20 levels total for that character. I got four or five items for characters I will never, never play as. And it's... It's frustrating in that regard because you just want stuff for the character that you want. I don't give a shit about any of these other characters. I'd fill them out eventually, but I don't care. And giving the player the ability to say maybe cash in items that they don't want and convert that currency to characters they do want seems like it would be a more player-friendly option than kind of saying, hey, you're not getting this stuff that you really want why not give us a couple of bucks and buy some more of these boxes? Maybe you'll get lucky, you know? Yeah, especially when you're buying, like, blind packs like that. I, I don't know. Like, I was just playing Kirby Robobot, and they have that, but not for money. You have to use play coins, so it felt a little okay to me. Yeah, because, I mean, play coins aren't really a thing you can earn money off of. It's just they're going to give you X amount of play coins if you walk around the block, which, yeah. in the grand scheme of things, I'm not mad about that. No, but it's still random. Yeah, and it's... So I think from what, from what we've established here, presentation is important. Randomization isn't necessarily the best way of handling that sort of thing. And maybe tell people that your game is going to be what it is before it comes out so that there aren't any nasty surprises when you spend $60 on a game that's half done. Yes, I think that is uh, maybe the most important is transparency of what you're producing. Right, and it's and we can see how those sorts of examples did ultimately damage a lot of other companies. Like on the the randomization aspect of things, that's consistently been a problem for all sorts of games, although not as much as the other problems. Presentation being a key point was what killed Evolve ultimately, and transparency probably would have saved Street Fighter V a lot of grief because they did the same thing once again with Overwatch, and everybody was like, oh. Okay, that's cool. No, we still want to pay money on this game. Yeah, and um, I wonder, I wonder if if Capcom is going to learn a lesson from that because that was where I thought, you know, when I started when we talked about this podcast, 
just because it doesn't seem like the Japanese companies are getting it as well as the American companies. I'm worried that a lot of my favorite franchises are going to go away. I look at it from the perspective of Capcom kind of has to learn a lesson if they don't want to eventually go out of business. But these are the same people that gave us 15 different iterations of Mega Man before people stopped paying money for it. Came up with a new way to market Mega Man and gave us like three or four iterations of that before people stopped making paying money for it. Gave us like nine iterations of the original Street Fighter franchise before people stopped paying money for it. Latched back onto Street Fighter again and then gave us like four or five more iterations of Street Fighter 4 before people stopped paying money for it. So... I don't think it's that likely, shall we say. They're not giving up. No. No, I'm, <laughs> I'm pretty sure that they're going to keep trying to pound that nail into a wall with their fist until somebody comes along and hands them a hammer. Like, they're not going <laughs> to figure that out on their own. But... I feel like insofar as this conversation goes, we are about where we're going to get with it. All right. So that's a wrap for this week. Sounds good. Join us next time when our discussion topic will be games featuring Shakespeare, fact or fiction. On that, my name is Mark B. Thank you all very much for coming. And on behalf of Mr. Jonathan Widrow, I'd like to say, stay safe out there, junkers.